Well, it's been quite a catch up over two weeks of not having had a podcast. A lot happening as ever. Uh, we talk about the Section 35 battle with Westminster and whether it's a wise battle to engage on uh, for Hamza Yousaf. We look at the auditor scandal. How on earth can there not be independent supporting auditors? who are willing to come in and have a look at the books, especially of the London uh, party. Uh, we look at the HPMA issue and why uh, a consultation is thought satisfactory when it doesn't offer compensation to folk who might not be able to fish ever again um, and doesn't basically spell out which parts of the seas might be prohibited from all commercial activity. Uh, we look at uh, Lord Frost, because somebody has to, and indeed there's even a mentioned Lord Fowkes, uh, because after all, Dodd is apparently a listener. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's been two weeks uh, since we last spoke, and in the interim, Leslie's been dotting about. I've been doing the flit, and I keep waiting for a chap at the door, Leslie, to for Police Scotland to, to, to come and ask me where these Le Creuset pots and pans are. I've stashed them, you know, and they're up in the armadillo, folks. And the only luxury pens I've got are a pair I got from my cousin, John McDonald, who runs mobile discos. And he's got, yeah, so that that's it, boys. You got me bang to rights. There we go. Aye. Now we will doubtless be, be accused of making light of the deep problems of the kind of uh, financial yes. situation, yeah. which is bad. Yeah, yeah Although, absolutely. I noticed Kevin McKenna wrote a, a piece in the Herald, I don't know if it was the day or yesterday, uh, where he was actually saying, you know, the, the, the kind of low level nature of the stuff that's been taken is kind of like a poor reflection on Scotland and the international sort of league of 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 kind of wrongdoing almost. I mean, got some phrase where he was he was saying it's more like the detectorists specs, dugs and sausage rolls, you know, than anything sort of classy. And they actually reversed the the, the usual. If ever if anyone is familiar with this phrase, hung for a sheep as a lamb, which oh, I guess that's you know just a general Scottish one or a Highland one. But anyway, um, you know that that basically the SNP are being hung for a lamb as a sheep. Yeah, you know, as in that's the things that you know. This is not to make light of any of it, but you know, no. when you stand back from it a bit, it's all a bit kind of limping along. But still, since George Fawkes is probably listening again, I'm hello George, of, hello, and who knew, you know? But you know, this is the beauty of having a free podcast that's regularly produced. Um, I'm not sure if there is anything actually produced by Labour journalists, but uh, or unionists uh, sort of supporting podcast. I'm not sure. I have to be really honest that I would probably be listening to it. But still, it's lovely to have you listening to George. And he uh, picked us up in our last podcast mm. um, for not tackling the question of the auditors uh, uh, sort of scandal, um, which was kind of because it was we, we recorded the podcast about four hours before the news actually broke. <laughs> Yeah. So and actually, to be fair to George, when I pointed that out on Twitter, he did come back and say, well, fair enough, you know, so mm -hmm. that's fine. But, yeah, I mean, it's it is pretty unbelievable, actually, yeah. because it just means that the last sort of regime with Colin Beatty, uh, Peter Murrell, and you've got to assume Nicola Sturgeon, because I think she was the third signatory or whatever on the accounts, seemed knew that they hadn't got auditors in place. And I guess you might think, oh, you know, it'll be fine. We'll get around to that. But for the length of time that they haven't been in place and the sort of potential jeopardy that it places, particularly the London party in, because if yeah. they don't have an auditor by May the 31st, they lose what's called short money, which is basically the money that comes 
from the British state to fund opposition parties based on um, the size of their cohort in Westminster. So that is a fair few bob to lose and would kind of essentially, you know, pretty much knacker the SNP operation in Westminster, albeit I see Humza is kind of saying he's hoping that they will have something. And if not, they will try to sort of talk, mediate with mm. the Westminster authorities. I just wish I knew people who were auditors, you know, because it feels like how difficult is it to find people? And yeah. are there no yes supporting auditors out there who would basically, OK, this is obviously going to be a bit of a dog's dinner there somewhere along the line. But I mean, since you're coming in now, would would the thinking not be that people would clearly see it, it wasn't a you what done it, you know, whatever mm. come is. And if you come in and say, actually, there's too many, you know, ifs, buts and maybes here and we just actually can't audit this. I mean, is that again, I wish I knew more about this, but does anything get to the stage where nobody will audit something? I mean, again, you know, folk listening, if you're an auditor, <laughs> do, yeah. do let us know, because it's it seems a mystery to me that this is such a difficult thing to do. Do you have any insights into this? Well, God, no. I mean, it's it's just that whole thing. I mean, all all I know is that the fact that both it would appear that both Stephen Flynn and Hamza didn't know about the situation with the auditors until February. Uh, I think it was about February the 9th or 10th. And then lo and behold, it was only five days later that Nicola Sturgeon resigned. So, I mean, it does seem to be, an, I mean, and to use that phrase that we use constantly, it's an absolute book. But it, I'm with you on it. It does seem utterly remarkable that no auditors are, seem prepared to touch going through the SNP's books. And for those people who turn around and say, oh, well, you know, hang on, wait a minute, it's, it's the Westminster party, I think it's over a million quid. And the result of that is that currently, I believe, that their SNP MPs at Westminster are being asked to donate more money to a central pot in order that uh, staffers be paid. So that's the situation we're in, because if I think it's the end of May and there may be an extension. And listening to Hamza this morning uh, uh, when he was being interviewed about it, I think I think it's on the cards. They are going to have to ask for an extension. But I think it's utterly remarkable that nobody would come forward and be prepared to audit the books. And because, then you, because also yeah. with, with the, the, the first deadline comes for the Westminster Party, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. And I mean, again, what do I know? But... Uh, I don't think that pot of money had camper vans taken out of it, you know. So it, it you know, okay, we've got to watch what we're saying here. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, you know, it was just I would have assumed that the accounts for the Westminster Party are to run the Westminster operation, you know. So it, it would be puzzling if that was also something that you know had lumpy items in it, shall we say? So anyway, no, we can't. We really can't get further into this without. No. Uh, Without without some jeopardy, but it's all pretty pretty weird. And that, for sure. I mean, I was at a um, I went up and did an event in Granton and Spey, which was a which was brilliant. It was another showing of the Estonia film, which seems to act as a great foil for people to actually think ahead about the you know frame up the kind of country you want. So we hardly actually discussed the SNP situation until almost you know the very end, and then in just general chat. And actually, there were I met two people who just joined the SNP mm. in that one meeting of, you know, about 70 people uh, and, and actually wrote a, a column for the Herald just yesterday, uh, which doubtless, I mean, I, I'm, I'm now not brave enough to look. Well, I've never been brave enough to look at the comments, let's be honest. <laughs> but um, uh, which is just pointing this out that um, there's a strange kind of reaction. I mean, I'm amongst SNP people as well. 
there's a bit of a sort of I mean, obviously, you'd have seen the whole thing on Twitter where people there was almost a meme developing about the mm. level of weirdness of the the tents and everything around uh, around the, the Sturgeon Merrill home. Um, but, you know, there's a, a level of people getting almost quite sort of fed up with the one sidedness, as they see it, of, of what's going on as well. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make two wrongs don't make a right. But, you know, there is actually there's two investigations going into faulty P- PPE that was supplied by a company recommended by Michelle Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, her husband is a Conservative Party donor. The PPE you know, getting into the fast track uh, actually resulted in 65 million quids worth of profits going to him. 65 million. You know, so again, mm-hmm. you sort of look at the relative numbers involved. And he put about 29 from memory, 29 million into an offshore uh, account, which reached her and her bairns, adults, bairns. So kind of that one, you know, that just gets very little publicity. Uh, And of course, she's not the leader of a country. You know, she's not first minister and she's not, you know, she she is a Tory peer. And okay, uh, lots of people will love to hate these figures. It's a bit like Lord Frost. (laughs) Um, You know, the the kind of nonsense that he's come out with lately uh, certainly attracts the eye and so on. But I mean, in a funny kind of way, and again, I did write a column about this, but it's sort of you you almost feel like you're you're, you're kind of flattering him by even taking the time to deal with him because he's just a bam. Basically, he's a barren (laughs) bam. I mean, baron, you know. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's 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 hard to to know where to place. Uh, all of that. Uh, but and yet what I sense talking around a lot of people is a sort of, first of all, a feeling that uh, this is a, a useful distinction between the SNP and the movement, however you want to define that, because uh, at the moment, and let's be fair, it seems from you know John Curtis's observations that actually uh, there haven't been many polls actually into how people are, you know, we're basing mm-hmm. where, where independence is, I think, on only one poll, maybe two subsequent to you know the whole of this Stramash beginning um so it's possible there might be a peeling away who knows and it says something actually that there hasn't been polls because that's you know generally done by newspapers or think tanks so it would seem that you know there's not enough cash in the kitty to actually even at a moment like this for unionist papers to actually dip in and find something useful about the levels of support but still let's just say that it's roughly stayed static so um, I don't know that it's even that a lot of people who have voted SNP, I don't know if people are thinking, well, let's vote Alba next time. Um, and we did get another pelter, actually, on oh, that. Yeah. I haven't got the name of the pelter on Twitter. I mean, it's been quite a pelty time um, <laughs> on the basis that in on the uh, podcast that we recorded in Belfast, I think I was asked what by someone in the audience from Northern Ireland, uh, what other parties supported independence. And I mentioned the Greens. I didn't mention, apparently, I can't remember, but I'll take your word for it. I didn't mention ALBA, didn't mention the Scottish Socialists, didn't mention the ISP, you know, didn't mention quite a lot of parties. And I'm sure ALBA will say quite rightly, you know, they have got elected members. I I wasn't really thinking it through logically. For a lot of people there, there was little enough time to basically explain the basics of where we are in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a thing where... I mean, I think Alaba's status will be enhanced enormously when they actually win an election at some level. <clears throat> and and I mean MSP or MP, uh, because, you know, currently they have got MPs. 
Uh, but those are people that have mostly changed party from SNP mm-hmm. to ALBA. And I'm not, it's not that I'm going, oh, that's not really good enough. Um, I, I, to be honest, I just wasn't really thinking. And if I, if that offends anyone, I'm sorry. But I'm also sorry to the Scottish Socialists and all the other parties mm-hmm. um, who haven't got elected MSPs at the moment, um, you know, that I didn't include. Um, but yeah, I think for Alba, it, it, you know, there's a, well, it, there's a free world here. I, I'm not at all in favour of the position that I understand Alba to have on continuing oil and gas exploration, for example. So, but nonetheless, it's perfectly true that they, they do exist and they are an alternative. Now, whether a lot of SNP will, will want to canter off to Alba, I don't know, because um, I think enough, a lot of people are also thinking, well, logically, with that kind of logjam gone, which was Peter yeah. Merrill's grip on the party and the inability to do practically anything like select your own candidates, really um, be confident that you could have a conference where if loads of people put motions in, that they would actually turn up on the, you know, on the on the conference paper and that you would see senior members of the party present whilst those debates were actually happening, which didn't happen last October. And is the reason I managed one day of that conference and then came home. Um, if, if you thought that things would change, uh, uh, and there's a, I think there's a fair head of steam developing now in that direction. And for example, that the rule changes that were brought in essentially to stop Joanna Cherry coming back up the yeah. road, but actually stopping all um, MPs from having an easy transition, Although you'd have to say, you know, one or two have made it um, up. But still, if all of those things were open to change and you've got elections to the NEC and uh, officers positions and quite a lot that should in a proper conference be up for being decided in October, you might think that this is actually the time to get in and about it. And I've spoken to a lot of people who are suddenly thinking, you know, having not bothered to go to branch meetings for ages, they're now thinking, Jings, actually, this October conference should be an important one. And are thinking, well, actually, I'd like to go and I'd like even to be a delegate to go. And I'll tell you, in October last year, I could count far more people that I, I knew who were SNP members and even MPs and MSPs who were not going to that conference. It was so pointless. So it it sort of tells you something else. And, you know, George, I'm sure you'll be dining out on this as well. But, you know, not just, of course, the financials are important, but actually, really, I think the financials arose from the organisational tendencies in that party. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to misuse W.B. Yeats here's uh, poem, the the second coming that people people probably know, which is things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. That's absolutely correct. Things have fallen apart and the central, the centre cannot hold the centralisation of the SNP, which then expresses itself through the centralisation tendencies of the Scottish government. You know, this cannot hold. So I think it's been a very positive thing. But I'll tell you one thing. Well, I, yeah, 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 sorry. Well, I, do, I, mean, I, see that I hear people saying that as well, but I, I guess that is true that things have to actually almost completely explode or implode. You know, something dramatic mm-hmm. has to happen for everyone to catch a grip. And actually, people to even there's people that I had very often mentioned my own misgivings about the way the SNP was being run, who would absolutely not take that there was any could any you yeah. know be anything going wrong. And still, you know, I don't know wh- when or whether. Nicola will be called up, you know, for this police investigation. Mm-hmm. But since she is the third signatory on the accounts, I would imagine she might even have actually submitted herself 
to the police to avoid, you know, arrest or whatever, because that would be the smart thing to do now is to absolutely get ahead of the what is an inevitable process that they're going through. Um, and it's not it's not a good you know, it, it has turned people absolutely upside down because the people that actually felt strongly about Nicola Sturgeon really, really trusted her. Mm-hmm. And are still trying to find a narrative that explains how someone that they regarded as highly trustworthy, very moral and kind of, you know, whatever is now, you know, looks like she's presided over an empire that we can see has not even got properly audited accounts. You know, so, um, it, it, yeah, it, it may be in, in hindsight, people may be able to say that this moment has been a good thing. But I, I still I still think it's it's. You know, it's it's people are still in shock, I think, actually, about a lot of it. But you would have to say that at the same time, this, you know, the, the knowledge that there's been such an incredible controlling streak um, through the way the SNP was run. And then actually, you know, to my mind, you look at that impulse for control. I, I think that actually was ex- extremely much part of the problem. I mean, Keith Brown was on the Sunday mm-hmm. show. And actually did, it. I thought, a very good sort of, you know, Denny mess with me, kind of, you know, not nasty, but just not going to be kind of pushed over. But he was saying that he thought that, you know, the problems arose when uh, there was the huge influx of members yeah. after 2014. But, you know, I think part of that was because if you've, if you've got a centre that's quite a sort of, you know, that likes to, 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 likes to be in control. I mean, let's be fair. What political party does not <laughs> yes. want to be in control? You know, I mean. That's, there's no point in being naive about this. But but the impulse to absolutely micromanage stuff gets you more and more controlling the more you're overwhelmed with members. So that, you know, if you've already got that outlook and you can see it in much of the SNP's you know, policy positions, they're not trusting people to run their own communities. Uh, they're not trusting people to, uh, you know, the, the structures that we've got of local government aren't local. It's almost like there's no there's no trust that you get a benefit from the hassle that would inevitably be involved in creating more local power. Um, I think if you looked and could see the kind of levels of capacity on people, you think, my God, we can't afford not to engage this. Mm. But that's never been a British outlook and it's not an outlook the SNP have had. So uh, I think anything that sort of saw saw the party awash as it was with members would lead to an almost automatic and equal resistance to actually involving people. Because if you involved one, you were involving 100,000. So you'd need to have, at that point, had a total rethink about how you were going to have a democratic party. Whereas what I noticed being, you know, someone who went to every SNP conference for 25 years is it went the opposite way, you know, so that, that absolutely it became much more like a sort of new Labour type party in its presentation and its management of conferences, which are for many uh, members, you know, the main only moment they get to sort of connect with the, the, the whole shebang of the party. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted your, your, your flow. But one of the things uh, I think we we can't underestimate is not just the impact that Nicola Sturgeon had upon SNP members and loyalists uh, within the party, but uh, the amount of respect that she actually garnered out with the party, particularly during COVID. So 
it will be interesting to see the the polls when they they come out next time to see what impact at all uh, the 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 scandals have actually had on support for independence. I would sincerely hope that John Curtis is right and that people can see beyond the individual and the party organisation, the SNP, to see the broader the broader uh, 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 picture. This, I'm not going to let Baron David Frost escape, though, unfortunately, because he's someone who said uh, and the SNP's implosion is a chance to uh, put um, failing devolution into reverse. And yeah. 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 <laughs> Yes, yes I'll, sorry. I'll, just I'll a, throw a, that one out there. Looking at the exact quote here because that was a that was another column that um, during the two weeks that have missed. Uh, yeah, well, he, he actually last August he de- he declared that Scotland and Wales aren't actually nations, which is mm. an interesting one. Um, um, well, anyway, and the UK should become a unitary estate again with devolution evolved back. Mm. Which is an interesting concept because I think of evolution just goes in the one direction, though, Dave. But um, and that another indie ref should be impossible unless 75% of seats at Holyrood are won over an entire decade. Right. So that's a sort of you know nah, that's just nah. But actually, you know, how do we look at the rest of his you know pronouncements? And he's some actually he's a really baffling guy because oh, I. Yeah. It's one of these moments where you start sort of, you know, slightly researching someone and then getting stuck down a slight rabbit hole with it because he got some first. I can't remember now which which subject like he's not. He comes across as really stupid. You know, I mean, in the stuff mm. that he's sort of like a, a clumsy speaker um, and a. Yeah, and, and he gets people's backs up. He was described as the Brexit negotiator who numbed the senses until people had sort of lost the will to live, basically, uh, and, and was responsible probably for not getting Brexit done at the time that Boris said he would die in a ditch if he hadn't actually met that deadline. So many people thought, you know, Frost, he's got nothing going on there. Uh, strangely, very, you know, was a very smart guy. And weirdly, I mean, this is actually a bit common with Boris as well, who spent time as a correspondent in Europe. He actually spent quite a lot of time as a diplomat. Can you believe this? Yeah. This guy's yeah. you know, main career was as a diplomat. However, in the course of that, you'd think he might, you know, of course he wouldn't. So, yeah, yeah, unbelievably, he was actually ambassador, UK ambassador to Denmark for two years. <laughs> so, you know, he ought to know quite a lot about how a proper devolution settlement works, as in, you know, the pharaohs uh, is so devolved that it can sign its own international treaties, which is why it's decided to be outside the EU, whilst Denmark is inside the EU. Um, but more than that, the pharaohs, since what really seems to have agitated Lord Fro- David Frost um, is Angus Robertson and others, you know, very daring to move around Europe, promoting trade and various other things. The Faroese, OK, a devolved government within Denmark, which Frost knows about because he worked there for two years. The Faroese have got missions in Brussels, Reykjavik, London, Moscow, Beijing and Tel Aviv. This is the Faroes population, 55,000. OK, that's how small <laughs> they are. That's how many missions they've got. And all those missions have diplomatic status because that was granted by the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yeah. So that's what respect looks like. That's what devolution looks like. And all this kind of how very dare you even go abroad. I mean, lots of people made the point that devolved entities around the world have got their own trade uh, you know, bodies. I mean, <clears throat> 
islands within Scotland, the Orcadians are great stuff popping up at uh, their own international uh, tourism events because they they very much want to sort of shape their own tourism offer on on Orkney. So it's just a nonsense this, but it's it speaks to, you know, it's almost as if we we don't know how the rest of the world operates and that pe- people should back off completely. And it it seemed to me that um, with you know since obviously uh, it. The, the British, well, if the British government actually reflected any of Lord Frost's thinking, which is the question, whether he's just an mm. outlier blasting off like a lone volcano, you know, and essentially being a little bit, well, maybe they find that useful because it vents some of the Tory stuff that many of them doubtless feel. But, uh, you know, whether or not that is going to be something the British government decide to get tough about, I don't know. But, you know, why not if you are going to be treated as naughty little boys and girls for even daring to go abroad? Well, just, you know, push the boat out. And I I did mention the example of Diplocat in Catalonia that has got a fully, you know, these guys are really walking the line because, uh, you know, if you if you are step the line there, you can actually be jailed. You know, the, 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 the Spanish government historically after that uh, Declaration of Independence, um, it, it actually liquidated this this uh, organization, liquidated. But I think that's how it was translated, uh, Diplocat. And this is a sort of consortium set up to promote international awareness of Catalonia. And interestingly, it is its biggest funder is not the Catalan government. Mm-hmm. There are 33 institutions that fund this, private companies, cooperatives, chambers of commerce, regional government, councils, universities, trade unions, Barcelona FC and banks. Really? So, you know, these guys have sort of thought, you know, actually, we need to have something out there telling everybody the story of who, you know, Catalonia. And uh, y- y- and they walk this line because what they're doing is public diplomacy. Now, in the great scheme of things, even the Madrid government has not been able to say that a public diplomacy council, mostly funded by the private sector of Catalonia, can be regarded as illegal, uh, even though, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a, for the staff who were there, there were some of them arrested at one point. It's a kind of brave thing to do. And just while we're at it, they actually, the Catalans, um, actually have their own uh, honour system. So like Lionel Messi, uh, their cellist Pablo Casals, and actually groups like uh, the Firefighters Department of Barcelona uh, all received uh, the, the St. George's Cross because St. Jordi is the mm-hmm. patron saint of Catalonia, as with many other countries. Um, so they've been handing out these gongs for ages and again have not had Madrid come and whack them out of the back of the head saying you can't do that. So, you know, it comes back a wee bit to um, Kevin McKenna's kind of thing about hung for a lamb as a sheep. You know, if you're going to get whacked out of the head by the, you know, the, the kind of Westminster for freaking daring to go and say we've got Scotch beef and Scotch whiskey, which are kind of our exports. We might want to have our own profile, which is potentially all that was going on. Um, you might as well go the full mile and actually set up a proper Diplo Scott, you know, because mm. what's happening otherwise is that this whole business of promoting Scotland is is kind of left to lots of um, think tanks and voluntary groups who are, you know, just knackered, actually. Um, and there must be a point where there's enough sort of backing for something to go out and do a lot of this public diplomacy stuff. 
And the reason I know about it is because I was invited to go on a Diplocat thing to uh, their St. Yordi's Day to see their Books and Roses Festival, which is what they do on their uh, on April 23rd, just a few days ago, where towns and village squares all across Catalonia are full of roses and books and people buy them for their lovers, their, you know, their parents, their uh, their their partners and their husbands and wives, their children. It's a fabulous thing to mm-hmm. see, uh, you know, this all happen. So they've managed to make it a cultural thing that dares to walk up towards a political line. Uh, where's that for us? Yeah, and what the, the thing I like about it, and the thing that, that, that I think could be copied, was the fact that it's a broader movement. It's not something that we pointed at as, oh, it's the SNP. It, if it, the diplomat model was taken on board, it is that broader civic movement that brings in trade unions, that brings in business. You know, it's. I think it would be a fantastic thing to do, and it could not have the finger pointed at it, as the finger is being pointed at just now. Because uh, I think James Cleverly never has someone been so grossly misnamed. Uh, is talking about giving greater supervision of Scottish government ministers when they go abroad. No, sending the minder with them just in case. You know, you never mm-hmm. care what these Scots are going to be up to when they get away from us. Yeah. Well, you know, I. I mean, they can knock themselves. I. I don't know if they. If they. Uh, you know the, the 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 way that it works. I don't know if there will actually be. It'll be as easy to mark the Scots moving around as it as, as the suggestion <laughs> is. I know, and I think I mentioned before that there. I know uh, from a friend that there was definite interference in an attempt by the Scottish government to try to use British embassy premises to hold an event, um, which was eventually going to be held in the Irish embassy out of sympathy until the British started feeling the collar of that aforementioned uh, activist who had sort of suggested that this might be a possibility, such that his employers started to give him a bit of heat. Um, So, you know, they're they're cute, these guys. I mean, no doubt. But the question to me would be, why are the Scots thinking the only thing they can do is use British embassy premises? I mean, Mm -hmm. God almighty, when we've done Nordic Horizons things with no funding for us, you know, we had funding for speakers who would come over, but there was no basic funding, you know, for any of us finding these avenues, finding venues, making contacts. Um, you know, we held everything that we did in non-governmental premises. So I don't know if there's some etiquette point, because there sometimes is, especially if ministers are abroad, that you actually have to be in, uh, in you know, you have to make contact with the British government. But I mean, again, what are they going to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, they're gonna, what are they going to ban you? I mean, they're already sort of essentially almost saying that you can't get, go anywhere without yeah. minders. There's a point where you just wish they would take them on. You know, I know this is a bit. Uh, this is going. You know, this is this is probably a, a bad thought. But you mm-hmm. know, if you, if you ever watched that film Love Actually, the point where, oh God, I've just suddenly forgotten his name, Hugh Grant. Um, you know, who's acting as the prime minister basically tells the Americans to take a hike, and there's a you know that everybody goes, yeah, great. You know, of course, this all predates having a a kind of, you know, prime minister in the shape of Boris Johnson, who made such sort of pyrrhic victories and mm. a, a, a daily event. But still, you know, people do love a bit of a rallying when people when someone just decides to say, we're going to go where we like. Thank you very much. We're not going to tell you. And if you think there's going to be some sort of diplomatic incident, uh, knock yourselves out, you know, and and, and intervene. But we're, we're going to take our trade missions around the place because quite evidently, you are, you know, not acting with our best interests in 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 mind, viz the 10 percent, you know, duty thing on on alcohol. 
Yeah. There's an easy enough case to be made for it. And I mean, by gum, it would perk everybody up. I mean, everybody. You know, I would have thought even people who are not actually independent supporters, those people who are not massively independent supporters but vote SNP are doing it because they want to see a muscularity in the dealings with London. And it's not a kind of here's a line and then you're saying, oh, but we never crossed it. Honestly, we never talked about independence to anybody. Mm-hmm. Just get out of here. You yeah. know, I mean, it's yeah. a free blinking world. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it comes to mind. I suddenly realised that once I got got through school, that if I said something and disagreed with somebody, there wasn't a big laddie waiting outside for me at four o'clock to punch my puss. You know, and that's <laughs> that's kind of what it is. And I mean, and, and just the, of the Scotch Whiskey Association, I've got to say, of course, in 2016, Baron Frost was a staunch Remainer oh, yes, when right. he was a, the, when he was head of the Scotch Whiskey Association. And it's a funny kind of thing. Not only is it going to be WBS, but it's going to be Franz Kafka in a second year at a court because Frost is one of these people that rose and uh, changed his mind and shifted his shape and became that staunch Brexiteer. And it is the face, along with Jacob Rees-Mogg, of what is what is a very regressive and reactionary con- wing of the Conservative Party. And Franz Kafka wrote, every revolution evaporates and leaves behind only the slime of a new bureaucracy. <laughs> dear, and, they, dear. And, 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 and there you go. Well, but actually, it, well, let's you know, let's just do the, the proper yeah. finish of the kicking because yeah. with Baron Frost. Because the other thing, when you look about it, is that his, his latest thing uh, was actually urging Rishi Sunak to move away from the medieval technology of wind power, saying there is no evidence that the world faces a climate emergency. Mm. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know what, you know, what's wrong with the guy. He was also, and then two weeks ago, he was again, he, he was kind of cock-a-hoop at the latest uh, trade deal, the Indo-Pacific trade deal. You remember, that's the one that might boost our economy by a whole 0.08%. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, but there is a thing where it's almost like you think to yourself, OK, we've had a wee bit of, as it were, fun here. But yeah. this guy doesn't need attention, you know. He doesn't. No. So no. I think as much as it, it is, it will tempt us in weeks, months and everything else to come. If, you know, doubtless people will be sitting. George, actually, if you've got nothing better to do, you could just kick, kind of keep kind of we counter as to whether or not we just, you know, give in to temptation and mention Lord Frost again. <laughs> but I mean, really, what the... Yeah, well, th- there is an important aspect to it as well. When he did talk about this rolling back of devolution, and uh, we get on to yeah, and it's going to be the, the thing that people are actually you know have been have been discussing, and it is it is uppermost in my mind just now, not because of the actual bill itself, because of the challenge that it places uh, along with the things like that people like David Ross have been saying about challenges to actual the powers of devolution, which is the Section 35 order and the GRR bill. And Homsi Yusuf has decided that the, the Scottish government will challenge this in court. And uh, to be perfectly frank, uh, even though there is a f- there are there are issues I do have with the bill, I think it's an important thing for the role of the Scottish Parliament to be recognised in taking that, the action they did in passing that bill. And it is a challenge to the power of the Scottish Parliament, not a challenge to the SNP government. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, just think about it the other way round. And I know people are saying, why make this a priority? The answer yeah. is because it's the first decision he had to make. It's a bit the same as 
the reason that we've got a lot of people down the road in Westminster who might usefully be up the road in Holyrood is because the first election after the NDREF was a general election. So if it had been a Holyrood election, you know, the likes of Philippa Whitford, Tommy Shepherd, you know, Mary Black, uh, Stephen Flynn, though they came in a bit later, you know, they would be in, in Holyrood. Mm-hmm. Demsa breaks, right? So Demsa breaks is that pretty much the first decision you've got, because it's, again, time limited. The time has passed. He had to make a decision as to whether or not to just go, I go on then. Section 35, you've not used it before. I quite appreciate that they have found other ways, like the internal markets bill has yeah. been allowed used to essentially just knock out anything that looks like it's deviating from a single set of UK standards, viz what the English want, to be really blunt. Um, but this is a different application of the Devolution Act, which is what the Scottish Parliament is about. This is their domain. If if they're not in and about that, nobody is. So um, he, if he was going to just go, oh, well, nah, let's not bother really, um, just go on. He'd have got equal, perhaps not equal pelters, but, you know, from from different people about how that works, that you've got, you're the supposed to be the arch defenders of an institution that you've just let these guys walk all over you. And again, I quite get the point that lots of people were very unhappy uh, with the bill mm-hmm. overall and then would have liked to have seen some of the amendments that the British government yeah. didn't insist upon and didn't react to any discussion beforehand. Um, and even now it seems that the... The Holyrood government, the new uh, Hamza Yusuf's government has said, look, if you want to talk about any specific amendments, we could discuss that. But that's not it either. So what it is, is it's absolutely a wrecking ball through devolution. That's what it is. It's not trying to find a solution. So, uh, you know, in the light of that, when that is what it is, are you going to say as you're, you know, you're the first decision you have to make as a new first minister that you're actually just going to let that one go. I think you can't do that, actually. And I mean, on all fronts, I just want to see more challenge because in the the act of challenge, you actually create you, you, you create a better understanding of what the Scottish government is about. You know, for example, right today, I see um, Greenpeace is taking um, an action, a legal action against the British government on the on the hundred licenses it's it's either issued or planning to issue for oil and gas exploration. So um, Greenpeace are looking at the stated commitments that the British government has to uh, climate change, uh, to meeting net zero targets and saying that those hundred licenses are actually in those terms illegal. Now, in Lots of people are managing to find legal ways to frame arguments that politically they are powerless to impact. And so, you know, the, the, the legal realm has become a more populous one simply because we don't have a functioning democracy. If we did have anything where we were in an, a, a union of equals, we wouldn't be in positions where we would have these or a written constitution, Begora. We wouldn't have so much uncertainty about how to try and impact decisions but right now, the only real success stories have been legal ones. So if that's the name of the game, I actually totally 100 percent back a first minister going in and defending the rights of the Scottish Parliament on this one. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And even the fact, I mean, you know, some people have pointed out the fact that you know, lots of legal experts have turned around and said, oh, it's, it's bound to fail. Now, there are, there are chances of success. But I, I, I don't know what you think about, Leslie, but even failure can be a success if it lifts the veil off the so-called junior of equals. And that's what happened with the Supreme Court decision was the fact that, uh, you know, get back in your box, Scotland. You do not have the right to do this. This is, uh, you know, you, you've had your you've had your referendum. You cannot call for another one. And I think that's what's what's what could happen here is if it goes to the courts and it does fail, it will at least lift the lid on the reality of devolved power is retained power. And yeah. they can introduce a section 35 anytime they like to stop anything they want. Yes. And uh, I mean, there's, there's various opinions on it. Uh, there was a Glasgow University law lecturer, Dr. Michael Foran, who was on the BBC Scott, maybe it was the Sunday show again, saying that it's actually unclear where the boundaries lie with the Scotland Act. And that's another difficulty with all of this, because it's the same with the Supreme Court verdict. Now, a lot of people think it was a mistake to walk in there knowing that you might possibly mm-hmm. fail, whether it was or it wasn't. You know, it's too soon to say history will tell us. But the trouble with an unwritten constitution is that you only find out where the edges of stuff are by challenge. So he's saying it's unclear where the boundaries lie, um, you, you know, because this section of the Scotland Act has not been used before. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like the only way you do resolve these things to know where they are is to take legal action. He, he feels there's a slim but not impossible chance that the challenge will succeed, although he thinks it'll succeed in the lower courts and then be struck down on appeal. Yeah. And it's true. Two former Supreme Court judges have said a legal challenge will likely fail. But I mean, we're, we're, we're in the land where we have to find these things out. And as per the Supreme Court, I mean, that's the reason that um, Time for Scotland organised that event outside, which indeed was Nicholas Sturgeon's final public appearances, it turned out. But uh, because we could see that there was a narrative to make Either way. And it's the same thing. When Scotland is being affected, Scotland stands up. If you don't do that, just go home. You have to get used to this, that, you know, that principle matters more than misgivings about any sort of small aspects of what's actually involved in the bill. Even large aspects, I would say. But then that's not for me to sort of tell everybody what they want to hop to. Simply to say that this is not a small thing. The, what, what you would be advocating, which is to give up two thirds of the parliament, listen to all that, all that evidence. Yes. And actually, while we're at it, you know, it, it what Hamza did in moving forward to suggest uh, that he, you know, that he was going to take legal action is he ended up getting absolute unanimity <laughs> from the progressive leaders of Scottish parties. Yes. And the blimmin' leaveable. You know, there was... The, all of them pretty much came out uh, and and actually backed what he was saying. Richard Leonard, may, people, may, many people have seen his tweet. The former Labour mm-hmm. leader actually tweeted um, the update to gender recognition law passed overwhelmingly by the Scottish Parliament would make life easier for a persecuted minority. It was both necessary and long overdue and must be allowed to stand solidarity. And as Sarwar backed Hamza Youssef, you know, saying that, the, the Section 35 veto was stoking a constitutional fight based on conflating women's safety concerns with the provisions of the bill. And he said, I think we were right to support the principle of the GRC, but I think the government was wrong rejecting amendments around sex offenders and single sex spaces. People might agree about that. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, that that mistake, he says, is now pretty clear for people to see. But he's still supporting the legal challenge. And so is Alex Cole Hamilton for crying in a bucket, you know, yeah. because he says it's about progress. So, you know, while everybody was kind of reflecting the concerns that that lots of organizations have about the, you know, about the progress of the gender recognition uh, reform bill, um, there were actually fairly substantial bits of of evidence you could have equally, if you were interested in balance, hello, um, you might have just chucked a lot of that in saying this is actually, I think, politically unique Mm -hmm. this moment. I mean, just while we're at it, um, the Tory MSP for West of Scotland, Jamie Green, uh, had he voted for the, the GRR and he wrote a letter to Rishi Sunak that was somehow leaked to the Times in which he said, I fear the UK government's rumoured move to block the Scottish Gender Recognition Reform Bill will set us back years. This yeah. move could be a gift to proponents of independence who accuse us of tearing up the devolution settlement. It could be a gift to the Labour as we uh, show LGBT, LGBT plus people, friends and families, that we are happy to leave the centre ground for others as we fail to live up to our promise to govern with compassion. Mm. So this is what acting does. It puts every other political, it sort of shuggles a little bit of, it's like ripples in a pond. It makes everybody else bob around a bit and think, well, what are we going to do? It puts them on the spot. Are we going to support this or are we not? And those, that sort of drive is what we have to see from a government is making everybody accept that actually there's a heck of a lot of settled will in Scotland about a lot of things. And that's more important because that's the thing we need to put. That's what moves us towards independence is recognising that even with Tories, we have actually got Mm -hmm. more in common than we have on these cross border issues where, you know, Labour is sitting with all its problems because Keir Starmer is still massively opposed to something his Scottish Labour counterparts voted for. Anyway, bloody blah. No, no, I mean it's it's an interesting one because the, the I was just reflecting on there another article that you wrote about uh, HPMEs, the the highly protected uh, marine areas where Labour supported, I believe, uh, along with the the SNP and the Greens, the introduction of these HPMEs, and now seem to be rolling back from it. But I thought it was, a, I mean, it, it was what I thought when you, to be perfectly frank, when you sent me that article to read, my heart sank. I thought, oh my God, I mean, what, am I going to have to get into this highly complex area? But what, the more I read it, the more the angrier I became because of the fact of what, the simpler explanation of what they were about, which hopefully you're going to give to everyone else here, and the total disregard for the local communities that it was going to affect. And again, as another example of the the previous regime's top-down centralised perspective on running Scotland. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I saw Ross Greer, I think, speaking about this on the Sunday Mm -hmm. show yesterday, and he quite rightly picked out the absurdity of complaining that communities hadn't been consulted during a consultation so my grouse and that of most of the communities involved is not that they're not being consulted. It's that the cons- consultation is ludicrous. I mean, people are being asked um, whether or not they could essentially see. Well, let's get back to the beginning. The Butte House Agreement 
So yeah. the Scottish Government and the Greens agreed to designate 10% of Scotland's seas as highly protected marine areas. There, there aren't actually that level of high protection is not being Im- imposed any almost anywhere else. However, there are other differently named levels of protection that are actually just about the same. And what they do is to protect all elements of the marine ecosystem by prohibiting or limiting human activity uh, so that you wouldn't get commercial fishing. You wouldn't get just folk out with wee boats. You wouldn't get any form of aquaculture, I think, potentially including seaweed farms, which is a new thing Mm -hmm. that I've also become very aware of, having done a very interesting Edinburgh Science Festival event on it. You wouldn't get oil and gas even uh, or renewable operations, even though... With the renewables, uh, they're discovering that like all forms of fixtures that are planted at sea, lo- large reefs are growing around uh, many of the offshore wind turbines. So that a lot of people are saying this is just running actually in the face of even the science because you could do some useful co-location. In fact, you could have seaweed farms between um, offshore wind turbines, which could work pretty well. Um, then, of course, you might argue that, you know, there wouldn't be, be difficult for ferries and so on. But the thing is, other people are managing this. Oh, and just by the by, swimming, diving and recreational boating may or may not be permitted. But here's the kicker. Um, that 10 percent of the seas might be in your patch or it might not. Mm-hmm. And you might be affected or you might not. And, you know, the the the, the, the response that the Scottish government's giving to the pelters is that um, they haven't yet decided which kind of seas they might close. Well, what kind of blinking consultation <laughs> is that then? Yeah. You're asking people whether to, you know, essentially vote for a, a, a closing fisheries in an area that might be theirs or might not be theirs. And then the next thing that might or might not give compensation for that closure. And actually, when I contacted the Scottish government for a formal answer on that question, I was told there would not be compensation. Now, so Mm. run that through your mind again. You've got a consultation where you're being told there will be no compensation for any closure that might be in your area, but might not be. How are you going to respond to that? Yeah. So the thing is, this is beyond crazy because the, 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 the thing is that, you know, for a lot of people that 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 uh, you know that are living on the islands, they are well aware of the the state of the seas, and a lot of them are very pro marine conservation. And some of them would even, in fact, a lot of people I think would even believe that tougher protection is probably quite a good move. But what the problem is is that that um, this has been a no information consultation and no compensation prospect. And the expectation is of a draconian regime with serious micromanagement. Now, does that ring a bell in terms Mm -hmm. of what we've been talking about earlier today with the whole SMP approach to stuff? It's that micro serious micromanagement. And of course, even though the islands happily have smaller, relatively local councils, they're still quite big in terms of, you know, the number of islands they actually each of them actually covers. Um, So. The, the, the lack of local control is the real problem in all of this. And actually, that does fit in with I just come from doing two book events at the Edinburgh Science Festival. Um, one was by uh, a, a guy from India originally, Siddharth Srikanth, which is called The Case for Nature. It was originally called The Business Case for Nature. And it's basically trying to explain how we, you know, his, his view is that if we don't realise that biodiversity is almost a bigger crisis than net zero, 
and it's a different one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he's got some extraordinary statistics. One is that currently 96 percent of, of the biomass of mammals on the planet, that's pretty much everything, is us and right. our livestock. And yeah. somehow he calculates that in the Stone Age, that figure was 2 percent. So we have absolutely pushed everything else out. And, you know, people will be well aware of the welter of statistics. It's so big that it sort of goes over your head. But what he's saying is that actually uh, nature, if it's allowed to just, you know, power away on on its own, is what sorts climate change out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in another jaw dropping talk, there was a French naturalist, uh, Vincent Dumézel. He wrote a book about the seaweed revolution He's calculated that um, if 9% of the world's oceans was properly managed to produce seaweed, the seaweed absorbs more greenhouse gas than we currently emit. I've had to wow. check that five times because that just seems an that extraordinary just, claim. Yes, absolutely. And seaweed absorbs three times more than a hectare of Amazon forest. It's also very possibly the reason that Homo sapiens exist, because uh, caves that were excavated across America um, discovered 22 different types of seaweed though, of the kind that were used by, you know, back in our evolution. I mean, this is millions mm-hmm. of years ago. The thinking is that the incredible uh, supply of protein that's available in seaweed was what allowed our brains to expand as a species. So honestly, it's a completely these books are mind blowing in the yeah. in the level of you suddenly getting real about about just how how you know you think we think biodiversity is because you see you know i don't know you see a blooming larch tree in the middle of a mm-hmm. uh, kind of con you know conifer plantation or just something incredibly yeah. minimal he's looking they're looking for complete vibrant species recovery not what what both of them describe as fortress conservation and you know people can easily get their heads around that that we think mm-hmm. it's quite cool we can point at a thing and say oh look Nature is being conserved in there. And um, that's just not going to do it either. So anyway, the point that they're they're both making is that where they've they've managed to change things around, there has been huge local involvement. Yeah. Um, and even there's one in a place in Colombia where they realized that the mangrove swamps and she, she, as soon as you say swamps, you think it's mm-hmm. not useful there, is there? And these words, I mean, that's also true of the way that stuff is described in Scotland. As soon as you've got the word bog, it's just like it's bogging, eh? But bogs actually can take, can manage to absorb far more carbon mm-hmm. than trees. So a lot of our vocabulary has even got a dismissiveness to a sort of wet environment. So anyway, the mangrove swamps of Colombia, the local communities there did this project actually measured a lot of the carbon, discovered 80% of it was underground in the mangrove systems. So they've been restoring that. And um, they could have done what the Scottish government is suggesting, which is a complete you cannot touch it mm-hmm. uh, sort of approach. Whereas what they actually did is they did um, a, a, a kind of um, a, a rolling program so that uh, the, the the villagers would not have zero logging but they would go through blocks sustainably over a period of years. So they basically had a rotational system of logging the the mangroves and so that each block had a decade to recover. Now, people might be thinking, my God, this is just, you know, okay, move on. But the point (laughs) is that that's why it was accepted. Yes. And 
his point is across the world, all sorts of places are making these exemptions for locals. Same with a tiny little state I'd never heard of called Palau, which is 500 islands in the Pacific Ocean, population slightly smaller than Lewis and Harris, so nay big. But they decided to designate the world's first shark sanctuary about 10 years ago. Um, now they've gone further and they've prohibited all fishing and mining in 80 percent of their waters with the remaining 20 percent reserved for locals only yeah. decided with obviously locals because it's just them. So it's kind of like, come on, um, you know, it's, it's obvious that these these no take zones because Lamlash Bay off Har Aran, these guys actually acted themselves uh in a brilliant organization called the Community of Aran Seabed Trust, Coast. Um, they were having a lot of intense bottom trawling, dredging and so on. And so they sort of basically created a no-take zone around Lamlash Bay. And, you know, the, the recovery is unbelievable. And what happens across the world when this happens is that there's the, 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 the increase in, in fish and the size of fish actually spills over to where fishermen can fish inside yes. it. So if you actually have trust, there's also levies paid to the community whilst these things are going on. You do allow things like recreation because lots of people get new jobs in diving. Because, I mean, believe me, I am now up for total scuba diving, learning and everything because <laughs> I want to see all this stuff. But this is what can happen. But nobody's framing it like that in the in the offer. And when even when people, I'm getting loads of people coming to me because I know so many people on the islands. If it's not about the blasted, disastrous situation with the ferries, which truly is appalling mm -hmm. as a new season is trying to work its way around and businesses just don't think they're going to make it now. After all, you know, think businesses that survived COVID now think they won't manage to make it through this summer because of the level of cancellations. People just say, you say the Western Isles, people say trouble. Yeah. You know, so come on, you can't have a situation where you take an idea, draw an idea down that sounds good on paper and then just chuck it out with no level of de detail to islanders who are already reeling from the same, you know, remote treatment from CalMac that does not have an islander on its board. And that board was actually appointed in 2021. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, the beginnings of understanding that it's not acceptable to have this level of top down professionalization as if these are the only experts in the world, that that should have been an opportunity. And these people are in post for four years. So, no, you know, understand that what's needed here is something entirely different where you've got to go out and, and explain how stuff has. You've got they've got to see the whites of your eyes. You've got to get out there and negotiate how this might happen and leave exclusions for locals that don't, doesn't put a whole, you know, a, a massive hole in the in the midst of the whole enterprise that you're suggesting, but absolutely allows people to continue or gives them guaranteed um, compensation. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the bit that, that, that threw me. I mean, we give guaranteed compensation for set aside, for example. I mean, why not for Anyway, it just it, 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 it flummoxed me. And the other aspect of it, Leslie, that, that really gets me is the fact that when the, the examples that you identified in the article and you just spoke about, surely, surely a goodness that when analysing what needed to be done in these areas, the best examples of community involvement and how it works elsewhere should have been taken into consideration. 
You know, it, yeah, it just well, seems so yeah, maybe, obvious. But, but the, on the other hand, I didn't know anything about that until I was handed two books to do in the Edinburgh Science Festival. I'm sure if I'd had a bit of a Google, I could find a lot more. But, you know, in a lot of these instances, it's a bit like some of the examples that, you know, that I've, I had in Blossom, for example. Part of the reason that I wrote those stories is because they don't exist anywhere else, you mm-hmm. know. Now, fair enough, as time goes on and the Internet works, you'd think that you should be able to find these things. But but, you know, there, there are experts out there who are, you know, young, outgoing people who want to communicate what they found around the world. And that's the that's the you know, they should, these guys should be in being advisors on how this could move forward because they carry the information. The chap, Vincent, is a it's amazing how the I mean, we're of a generation that um, oh, what was the name of the French uh, naturalist who you know did all the diving? Oh, Jacques, Jacques Cousteau. Cousteau. Right. So many of us came in long before David Attenborough had all those series of programs. And just by the by, his main cameraman on the, the final series, the controversial one, Ocean, that's on tremendous program that's on the iPlayer, um, which is the one that, you know, was sort of dumped by the BBC for being too political, because it does absolutely show you what happens beneath the waves if you don't manage uh, fishing and so on, mm-hmm. overfishing properly. But the guy who did all that that fishing is from Lamlash Bay, Laren. Oh, right. So the thing is, that's where his first, you know, his and he's I mean, they show you within the program the consummate skills this guy's got of filming stuff in all sorts of situations. He's been involved with all David Attenborough's programs, but he's like a Scottish Jack Cousteau. Not that I can even remember his name, you know, but back in the day, <laughs> for those of us of an age, Jack Cousteau was the first one that took us beyond you yeah. know, our living rooms type thing. And it's incredible that this this chap, Vincent Dumazel, is exactly the same within France. He's really lauded as a kind of, you know, naturalist of the sea. And he's Mr. Seaweed across the world. And we know nada about him, you know. Yeah. So come on, we've got more. I mean, when he was, I was talking to him, he was saying, you guys are so set up to actually have seaweed farming that if you even incorporated a small amount into your diet, as Eastern Asian countries mm-hmm. do, the level of protein that you would pull into your diet and improve your overall health over generations would be phenomenal. And you're sitting pretty because you've got it all around you. You know, you just need to manage for it as well. And it turns out that the first license for a, a, a seaweed farm is, I think, about to be awarded to St. Andrew's Bay, just around the coast from us. So yeah. I'm going to meet the last who's and it's a, it's a young woman who's got that license. I mean, Fantastic. this is a fabulous new thing for Scotland, you know, so we yeah. should know more about it. Seaweed, scuba yeah, well, diving. Well, it's, it's interesting when you mentioned you mentioned the seaweed and uh, when we were doing the flit and thank you to everybody who got in touch and said good luck on the flit it was Friday. It was I, I my, my son-in-law said you two were very calm. What you do? Oh, boy, it was it was like they say, you know, a swan, very elegant on the surface and paddling like feck underneath it to keep going and the the smell of seaweed that was coming up off the off Wormit Bay was absolutely beautiful and uh, we managed to, to to get the flip done and and, and I don't normally do this but I'm going to say a big thanks to Evelyn at Sanford Country Cottages for the fantastic job she did on 
securing a, a long-term let here for us as we await the the ever-shifting boundaries of the the build date for our for our new home in Wormit as well. And it's a fabulous place up here. They've, they've taken over uh, what was a Bailey Scott uh, Arts and Crafts uh, building that had once been a family home for the Valentines and then became a hotel and had fallen into disrepair. And they've absolutely restored it to an enormous uh, level. It's absolutely wonderful. And again, thanks very much to Evelyn for making Jill and I's life an awful lot easier than it, than it might very well have been in the, the fraught times of moving from your house after 30 years. And, 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 so it was and, great. and obviously the, the broadband's working pretty well. And can actually, when we're on the thanks front, can I just thank, yes, Badenoch and Strasbay that put on that uh, the, the film and particularly Thomas and Ben. I stayed in their B&B and had great crack until the wee small hours with them about just about everything. So um, that was grand as well. So we are a happy set of people, it would seem. Yes, yes, we are indeed. And with thanks to Jim Goodwin and his Tangerine Army, as the last ringing statement I'm going to make after three wins in a row, we'll see you next week, Johns.